Welcome to episode 12 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Mr. Patrick Wallace, medical student at Rocky Vista University and member of the RSA Education Committee, speaks with Dr. Samid Sheikh, emergency physician at UC Health Memorial Hospital in Colorado Springs. Today, Mr. Wallace and Dr. Sheikh discuss the approach to working up an acutely psychotic patient. Welcome. This is the AAEM Collaborative Podcast Series. I'm Patrick Wallace, and I'm here with Dr. Sheikh from Memorial ED in Colorado Springs. We're going to be discussing the approach to working up an acutely psychotic patient. First, tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Sheikh. Well, thanks for having me, Pat. I completed my residency about a year ago, graduating from Sinai Grace in Detroit. I'm now practicing in Colorado Springs at UC Health Memorial Hospital. So let's get started. Generally speaking, emergency medicine physicians aren't particularly fond of psychiatric cases. They require a lot of time and workup. Depending on the presentation, the patient can be difficult to control, and the duration of patient stays may become incredibly long. Patients who present often with recurring symptoms may use up resources that could be put towards other patients in need. Psych patients still need thorough testing, though, to rule out medical causes before placing them on an involuntary hold and sending them to the nearest inpatient psych facility. This quickly becomes time-consuming. A lot of times, these patients are suspected of a psych disturbance and just placed on an involuntary psych hold and sent to the nearest inpatient psych facility, where they can be appropriately treated. This hold allows physicians to admit a patient involuntarily for up to 72 hours. A problem that is becoming more common is lack of continuity between EM physicians and mental health providers. Many psychiatric hospitals receive patients and assume the thorough workup to rule out a medical cause of their symptoms has already been conducted. Conversely, some EM physicians encounter a patient with suspected psychiatric illnesses and bypass a thorough workup with the rationale that they will be sent to an inpatient psych facility where the workup can be conducted there. As EM residents and physicians, we have a duty to our patients as well as our colleagues to address these questions and conduct a thorough workup before discharging patients to an inpatient facility. Dr. Shake, can you tell us the first thing you do when a psych patient presents to your facility? So psychiatric patients fall into a couple different baskets. The first patient is the acutely psychotic patient who is delusional and usually has a history of schizophrenia who presents with concerns of acute exacerbation of their baseline symptoms. The second basket is the patients who are suicidal, homicidal, expressing those thoughts or possible ingestions. And then the third one are the ones who are a new altered mental status with a psychotic type of behavior, and those are the ones that are especially concerning that you want to rule out a medical organic etiology. So the first thing you want to do is look at the patient and get a set of vitals. Don't forget to look at the vitals. Tachycardia, fever are all concerning signs. Tachypnea can be evidence of Kussmaul's respirations in the context of a toxicologic ingestion. When you're working up categories two and three, and optionally the first category, so the patients who have concern for a possible ingestion or medical or organic etiology, 
of their symptoms, you do need to evaluate definitely a tox screen and alcohol level. Urine analysis may be helpful in the elderly who may have a urinary tract infection that may be causing sepsis with associated encephalopathy. A CMP to evaluate for renal insufficiency, uremia. LFTs may be signs of hepatic failure or evidence of Tylenol ingestion or overdose. A caveat to that being elevated LFTs with a normal Tylenol level may be suggestive of a recent ingestion and ongoing hepatotoxicity, and the patient may still be a candidate for treatment. A CBC can be helpful looking at anemia and B12 deficiency, which can present as a mood disorder with mixed psychotic. Also consider thyroid disease, hypo and hyperthyroid states. An EKG can also be considered. TCA ingestions show the characteristic R prime and AVR. You can also look for evidence of QT prolongation, which may be associated with certain ingestions, and it can also help you evaluate tachycardia, which some of these patients may present with. Don't forget to review the patient's current medications and medical history. Oftentimes, uh, psychiatric patients are on a litany of uh, medications, antipsychotics, antiepileptics, and they can get messed up and overdosed. Additionally, in the workup, a CT isn't mandatory, certainly if you have a psychiatric patient with a known history, but if you have an elderly patient, if you have a question of trauma, or if the story is just not clear, a CT can be helpful especially in the elderly, spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage or subdurals. Strokes are also considerations that may require advanced intracranial imaging. Now, what are some of the most common medical causes that might mimic acute psychosis? Well, that's a great question. It's uh, definitely a laundry list. Um, You can have ingestions from recreational drugs, including sympathomimetics, methamphetamine, alcohol and acute alcohol intoxication, some certain withdrawal syndromes, including alcohol withdrawal, benzodiazepine withdrawal, overdoses, again, thyroid disease, neoplasms, stroke, infectious causes such as encephalitis or autoimmune encephalitis, and might be more difficult to elicit this in the ED setting, but diseases such as Huntington's disease, porphyria, prion disease, B12 deficiency, and a whole litany of other medical pathologies. Okay, so let's go through a couple of examples I have, and Dr. Shake can help us work through them. So first, we have a 70-year-old male presents to the ED where he was saying people were after his weapons and he was being followed and targeted for attack. One week prior, his son noted that he had sudden loss of speech articulation while working in the backyard. He was also unable to grasp his tools in his hands and had loss of balance. The episode lasted about 30 minutes. After that, his wife noted the psychosis and delusional behavior. Assuming we have already gotten vitals, what is the next step we should take on here? Well, it's a bit of a mixed picture in this presentation. The next step, I think, by the book would be to get a glucose. But as far as the workup on this gentleman, this may be an acute onset of a delusional disorder or a brief psychotic disorder. Given a 70-year-old male that had signs and symptoms that could be consistent with an acute CVA or TIA, I would work him up in that regard. He would need a CT of the brain and a full medical evaluation in the ED. Given his age and likely comorbidities, this is a gentleman I'd be hesitant to disposition straight to an inpatient psychiatric facility. I would at least bring him in for an observation for a stroke evaluation, including the echo and carotid, the typical medical workup. But I would, in speaking with my hospitalist during the admission, 
raise that I am concerned that this may be a medical or organic pathology. And if I'm not able to elicit that in the ED, that they should dig into it further before they disposition this gentleman psychiatric type setting. Okay, next case. A 57-year-old female presents to the ED with psychosis. She has a history of bipolar disorder, and the patient's family was interviewed. They said that she was diagnosed with bipolar over 20 years ago. They are unsure whether she has been taking her medication consistently, but said she has had similar symptoms in the past. What would we do next here? This is a case where you might want to take a moment, take a look at the vitals, take a look at the patient, take a look through the medical history. If she's presenting with acute psychosis, with some delusional thoughts, hallucinations, bizarre behavior, but does not have suicidal, homicidal thoughts or ideations, uh, does not exhibit any toxidromes, such as an opiate toxidrome, anticholinergic, sympathomimetic, and seems to have a behavior consistent with what the family has described, it may be reasonable to check a alcohol and tox screen, which are typically required for most psychiatric screenings, and you could potentially stop there. Now, if you have any red flags, any questions, any thoughts from the family about possible ingestions, or if she's not just fitting the typical picture, I would go ahead and trigger the full workup, including the CBC, CMP, tox evaluation, EKG, etc., as we talked about earlier. So let's say you perform a UA and find the patient has a UTI. You begin your treatment, but how long do you keep her in the ED? Do you admit her to the hospital? Do you place her on a medical psychiatric hold and admit her to the inpatient psych unit? Again, this comes down to a bit of clinical judgment. If this is an otherwise relatively healthy 57-year-old besides her underlying psychiatric history, she doesn't have a history of prior surgeries, kidney stones, and the urine is showing like 10 WBCs, plus two bacteria, but she's otherwise well-appearing, no fever, no leukocytosis, I think that would still be a reasonable person to put on a short course of antibiotics if they're symptomatic, and they could be dispositioned still to an inpatient psychiatric setting. Now, if you have someone who's elderly, they've had a prior catheter, they are septic, they seem more encephalopathic than psychotic in the sense that they're more confused or lethargic rather than delusional, that would be someone who I would pause, likely bring them in for admission, start them on broad-spectrum antibiotics as appropriate, culture the urine, and that patient needs to be treated before they can be called a psychiatric primarily as their diagnosis. Okay, next case. 48-year-old female presents to the ED with psychosis. She also states that she had difficulty walking and some numbness in her legs. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in her early 20s. Her friend who is accompanying her states she often becomes psychotic when she is off her meds and thinks she has not been compliant. The patient has previously exhibited visual and auditory hallucinations, as well as somatoform delusions. Today, the patient states she is hearing voices telling her to kill herself, and all her muscles feel stiff. So we begin our workup with the basic lab test again, and we discover she has a profound macrocytic anemia. So that's a good case to bring up. So this is one where you need to stop and listen to the nuance of the case, right? So you have a 48-year-old female with a history of prior bipolar disorder, questionable medical compliance, who is exhibiting some clearly psychotic symptoms. But the caveat is she has new symptoms of the difficulty walking, numbness in the legs. These are red flags. These should make you pause and reevaluate the case. So here you're seeing a macrocytic anemia, and that would be highly suggestive of a folate or B12 deficiency. We should at least 
Attempt to find out what medications she is on and if she's taking any extra medications. Bone marrow dysplasia, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease can also cause macrocytic anemias. At this time, I would draw a B12 level, but the turnaround time on that is uh, probably not quick at your institution. This is a case where the right thing to do is probably bring in the patient to have them evaluated by hematology, get started on a treatment regimen, and have the psych versus the non-psych sorted out by individuals who are not busy running an emergency department. Excellent. Now let's talk about alcohol for a minute. For our alcoholic patients, they can present in many different ways. They may come in acutely intoxicated, or obtunded and found down, or they can be in withdrawal. One of the disorders we worry about in the ED with anyone who has a chronic history of alcohol use is Wernicke's Korsakoff. The reason this is important as this syndrome is preventable. We prevent and treat with thiamine, which is vitamin B1, folate, and then glucose. Dr. Shake, would you like to tell us a little more? Sure. Wernicke's encephalopathy is typically characterized by the triad of confusion and altered mental status, ophthalmoplegia, and ataxia. And by ophthalmoplegia, they mean paralysis of an extraocular muscle or vision changes, have most commonly the lateral rectus muscle involved, and you can have associated nystagmus. Subsequently, the patient will develop psychosis called Korsakoff psychosis that's characterized by memory loss, personality changes, and confabulation, which is essentially making up facts uh, that they believe to be true. Because Wernicke's is due to thiamine deficiency, it can also present malnutrition cases, patients with anorexia, bulimia, hyperemesis, gravidarum, etc., so the typical classic teaching is when treating these patients, you want to give them glucose before you give them thiamine, because theoretically giving thiamine will drive the TCA cycle and lead to a further utilization of thiamine and other cofactors, and giving the glucose will prevent this. This is based on some anecdotal and theoretical evidence and is questionable at best, but it's easy to do and is a bit of ingrained in both medical and nursing culture, and so I think it's not unreasonable to just go ahead and do that. You will also want to give folate uh, empirically because folate deficiency often coexists with thiamine deficiency and can add to the encephalopathy by reducing thiamine absorption. The caveat to all of this is a bit of a diagnosis of exclusion in the context of the ED because you're not going to be able to get your thiamine level back in a rapid manner. You should also assess this patient uh, fully, the CBC, uh, CMP, tox workup, ETOH level, and uh, this is a patient I would absolutely get a CT of the brain on before I called this Wernicke's encephalopathy. Now, are there any patients that can be cleared without an extensive medical workup? Yes, absolutely. So as we've mentioned, a patient who's otherwise young and healthy with a known psychiatric history presents with a exacerbation of their baseline psychiatric symptoms, meaning acute psychosis, delusions, hallucinations, without suicidal or homicidal thoughts, gestures, or concerns for ingestions. Normal vitals is a reasonable person who can forego the workup and can be referred to your mental health evaluation. Conversely, who are the most likely to mimic a psychiatric illness and catch us off guard? So certainly your elderly patients. These patients are susceptible to infections. They're susceptible to drug interactions and polypharmacy misdosing of their medications, intracranial pathologies. They can be on medications such as beta blockers that can compensate for tachycardia that may be induced by certain pathologies. They're just very high risk. I'd be very cautious dispositioning anyone over the age of 60 or so uh, straight to an inpatient facility without an extensive workup. 
Now, what pieces of history or physical exam point you towards a psychiatric or a medical illness? Well, first, uh, red flags as far as medical pathologies. Fever, altered mental status, where they're more, again, encephalopathic, confused rather than delusional, can guide you more towards medical disease. Their prior medical history, history of prior surgery, can raise some red flags. For patients with concerns for medical disease, ingestions, or suicidal thoughts, I always do a detailed neurologic examination. You're looking for evidence of things such as rigidity, pupillary response, clonus, diaphoresis, perspiration. These can point you toward certain toxidromes and ingestions. As far as physical exam findings of psychiatric illness, it's more related to patterns of speech, a flight of thoughts, context of their speech can guide you more towards a psychiatric pathology. What do you do if you are unsure whether this is medical or psychiatric? Well, I think that's a pretty easy answer. If you have any question about it, I would always err on the side of caution and bring this patient in to the hospital so they can be further evaluated in an inpatient setting with a more detailed evaluation. Uh, You would hate to send someone with an underlying medical illness that is reversible or potentially life-threatening to a psychiatric setting. Remember that when you put your name on the medical clearance, that is nearly definitive from the perspective of the psychiatric team. They're not going to reevaluate the patient necessarily from a medical perspective. So you want to be pretty darn sure before you send the patient away. Great. So let's talk about substance abuse. What tips you off to go looking for substance abuse? So you want to listen to the history. Was this a suicidal attempt or a suicidal thoughts? You want to look again at the physical exam findings, the pupils, the skin, clonus, rigidity, muscle tone, and the neurologic exam, and these can give you a suggestion of certain ingestions. So small pupils, bradypnea, hypopnea, suggestive of an opiate toxidrome, diaphoresis, dilated pupils can be suggestive of a sympathomimetic toxidrome along with tachycardia, agitation, so cocaine, methamphetamine, those type of things. As far as clonus and rigidity, those would be things that you would see in potentially a serotonin syndrome. You'd also see flushing. And you can also see that, interestingly, in some other ingestions, such as high volumes of Benadryl, I've seen some patients with clonus. So some of these things are mixed and can show up in multiple places, but you need to at least be looking for them and narrow down your differential. Emergency medicine providers often have to manage acutely agitated patients. What are some of the gold standard medications for sedating someone who you have little past medical history on and is now becoming agitated, aggressive, and a danger to your staff? Well, if you have a combative patient, first you want to try and talk to them. Although it may not be fruitful, it's certainly worth an attempt. That said, if they're acutely trying to injure themselves or others, I would A, call security and have them place the patient into restraints. At the same time, you can be preparing for chemical sedation. Ideally, you should be using a six-member team, uh, one for each extremity, one for the head, and one applying restraints. Remember, the restraints should go to the frame of the bed and not the side rail. You want one arm up, one arm down. Try and raise the head of the bed to prevent aspiration. And the leg should be tied to the opposite side of the bed to prevent flailing. As far as chemical sedation, a classic combination is the B-52, Haldol, Benadryl, and Ativan. Remember the Benadryl is often given as a separate injection because it does not mix well and can crystallize. The Benadryl is good because it provides sedation and also prevents uh, the dystonic reactions. 
as far as benzodiazepines go, although Ativan is classically given in this combination, midazolam or Versed typically has a faster onset when given intramuscularly, although it does have a shorter half-life. So you may consider giving one or two milligrams of IM midazolam if your pharmacy and uh, institution allows it to be given in that way. In some institutions, midazolam is reserved for sedation or anesthesia-like purposes. You can use other antipsychotics as well, such as Respiradol, Geodon. They have concerns of QT prolongation along with Haldol. Other medications like Droperidol have black box warnings in that regard. That said, for the most part, you'd be generally safe giving a one-time dose, and if the patient is actively harmful to themselves or others, you won't be able to get an EKG before empiric treatment. Before we conclude, do you have any psych pearls for Um, us? I think, as we've been touching on throughout this, you are the medical evaluator, and beyond that, the patient will fall into the care of psychiatric care providers, which includes psychiatrists but is not limited to them. And it is unlikely that the patient is going to have an extensive, further, deeper medical evaluation. So I just caution you to take your time with these patients. Do not blow them off. They can have serious toxicologic ingestions. They can have serious underlying medical pathologies. And if you don't take the time to evaluate them appropriately, these things can be missed and they can go on to have significant deleterious effects. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Shake. That's all we have time for now. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the AAEM podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.